when people talk to me about their strengths, about what they're really good at, about their skills and their mindset, I think about like, wow, what an awesome person to have on your own team when crap hits the fan, <laughs> you know, like, and I don't think we think about ourselves in that way. We don't think of ourselves as like, you know, if I make the wrong decision, I want me on my team to help me figure it out. Welcome back to the Career Therapy Podcast, where we help you navigate the emotional and promotional sides of the job search so you can change careers with confidence. My name is Martin McGovern, founder and lead coach at Career Therapy, and I'm excited to introduce our guest today. Please welcome Alicia Wolf to the podcast. Alicia is a psychotherapist and executive coach at Goldfinch Wellness, working with individuals experiencing directionlessness, anxiety, depression, and a general sense of unease. She utilizes Buddhist principles of mindfulness, self-acceptance, and self-knowledge to help you find the path that works for you. Today, we talk about self-trust and why it's so hard to cultivate it in our careers. We also challenge the hustle culture, always be sprinting mindset and ask, when is it okay to jog? Finally, we figure out how to separate yourself from your career identity in a way that creates a healthier work-life relationship. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode and supporting our show. Please like, subscribe, and share this conversation as we talk with Alicia Wolf. Alicia, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, I'm really excited to dig into the topic here of how to trust yourself, especially in the work environment and in our professional lives. Because, you know, there's a, there's a lot going around on the internet these days about toxic work environments. And, um, and your background in particular is one that I, I resonate with because you have so many good perspectives on it from both a career perspective, leadership perspective, and a mental health perspective. So as we jump in here, I would just I'd love to kick this off by like, if someone's in a toxic work environment, I mean, there's clearly they're probably having a hard time, but what are the things to look out for um, to really identify if it's maybe the environment you're in, or if it's maybe something personal that you're going through? I think trying to differentiate between those two things is, is tough for people. How would you, how would you kind of help someone assess their environment and see if they're in a toxic workplace? It's such a great question because um, so frequently when somebody comes to me with challenges with their work, their assumption is that they are the problem, you know, and if they can just sort of work some things out internally, then everything will be okay. And um, it's actually one of the things that I look for when I'm trying to sort of discern what's going on with somebody is how they talk about themselves in the work environment. And... <clears throat> I hear a lot of um, phrases like, I just can't hack it. I just can't handle it. Um, if I can just better figure out how to compartmentalize, um, how I can not take things personally. And, you know, <clears throat> this these are problems and challenges that some people do have in their lives is they do want to learn how to not take things as personally and things like that. But I do think it's important to um, remember the person that we were and the challenges that we had before we had this particular job. And I think there's a lot of insight there into if we're having a sense of, of a challenge that we've never really had before, perhaps it's at least partly caused by the work environment that we're in. And 
one of the hardest things I think for people to identify about a toxic work environment is like one of the, the, the big markers that I see in somebody that's in a toxic work environment is that they don't trust themselves. They don't trust their ability to their abilities, their skills, their sense of themselves. Sometimes they don't even trust their sense of reality, their sense of being able to accurately report what's happening around them. Um, <clears throat> and so it's very easy for someone in that environment to feel like they are the problem and they're the thing that needs to be fixed. So <clears throat> I think it's a little bit of sort of looking at both sides, but when somebody sort of comes to me and says, I'm the problem, I need to be fixed, that's kind of a red flag for me that something might actually really be going on in the workplace. Yeah, and it's it really does play into some things that we see in toxic relationships as well. And obviously that makes sense because everything at work is relationship-based and everything in our lives is, you know, we're social creatures, right? <laughs> and so totally we right. do see a lot of the same kind of, um, difficulties that someone might have who, you know, from the outside, objectively, you're like, whoa, that's a bad place to be. But inside, they're just like, no, I can fix this. I can work through this. And, um, you know, that lack of ability to trust yourself or trust your feelings or needs or anything like that. I think there's sort of two sides to it. The first side is how do I, you know, manage my stress, my anxiety and the things that I'm doing, like kind of what you mentioned, but also there's a lot of work environments that sort of foster that feeling. And I do sort of see this in, you know, there's kind of a nice pushback to hustle culture happening right now. Um, mm -hmm. But there is this sort of sense that like, if you're not crushing it, if you're not succeeding, if you're not moving up, it's be, it's not just that you don't fit in this role. It's that you're like a bad person or you are failing in some other deeper way. Um, have you sort of seen people come to you and kind of talk about the messages that they're seeing out in the world that are making them kind of exacerbate these, these probably fairly normal feelings, but heightening them to a different degree? Absolutely. I mean, there's so much wisdom in all of those pieces that you just shared, but Absolutely. I mean, I, I really agree with you that there is um, this narrative that's very prevalent in, in this generation and capitalism in general, which is like hustling and producing more means that you really means that you are a good person, right? There's, it's a very, it's very much tied to like our moral compass and what we believe about our own goodness. And um so words that I hear people use a lot is like, I'm lazy. I don't have um, enough willpower. I don't have, I can't hold myself accountable um, because they're not producing at this level. That's perhaps an unreasonable expectation in the first place. But um, <clears throat> the expectation has been laid out as if it's reasonable. It's something that anybody could be able to do. And so um, if the expectation is laid out in that way, it's creating the reality that like, okay, here's what you, the level you should be performing at. And if you can't perform on that level, or it causes you a lot of suffering to perform on that level, then there's something wrong with you, which brings in this other piece that you said, which is so true, the parallels between toxic relationships and toxic workplaces, because one of the things that we see in toxic relationships is that one person tends to be sort of like dictating the reality for both people, which way, may or may not actually be reflective of 
reality at large, but, you know, someone, one person is always the problem. And, you know, anytime something comes up, it's like, well, this is because, you know, I had to do this because you did that. And it's sort of constantly putting one person in the position of the problem. And slowly that person starts to believe that they are the problem and that they can't see the situation clearly. In fact, only the partner can see the situation clearly. And unfortunately, this dynamic can come up in workplaces too. And we don't necessarily trust our version of reality that might be saying, wow, this expectation is unrealistic. I don't think anybody could do this in 40 hours a week. Um, But if your boss or if the CEO or if the just general expectation is this is totally doable, we start to then doubt ourselves and our own abilities. Yeah, there's just so much I want to dig into here. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So one of the things that um, I definitely see a lot is this idea around how did we get here, right? Like, we grow up in a system that's, you know, in, in an education system that has sprints and grades, right? And we're really on this, like, I have to achieve, I have to get to the next level sort of place. And I think what's so interesting is when we transition out of that into the quote unquote real world, a lot of people hold on to those mentalities, but don't have the sort of endpoints that are built into that system. So there used to be like sprint really hard, do finals, have Christmas break. And what mm. tends to happen now is you sprint really hard, you get to the end of the project and you're rewarded with another project. Like there's not an end to anything. And I see that after, you know, 10 years, 15 years, people are still in that sort of school mindset. And then all of a sudden they're just like, wait, what is happening? Like, <laughs> Where am I? What's going on around me? And like, they completely lose their sense of self because they're not, they're probably not getting, you know, that validation or that feedback loop, or, you know, at least there were grades back in the day, but there's no grades anymore. So it's just this constant sort of grind that eventually just wears away. And I think that's maybe one of the things that also helps foster this lack of um, trust in ourselves because in our minds, you know, there is an end goal or like way in the back of our mind, it's like, there is an end goal here, but in reality, there's not, there is no end goal. And so one of the things I've been asking people as they start their job search uh, is what is, <laughs> what is your employer actually expecting out of you? And how much are you actually working, right? <laughs> and I'll get very funny answers. And sometimes I phrase it in a different way. I'll say like, what's the least amount you can work without getting in trouble? <laughs> and, <laughs> mm-hmm. and they're like, oh my gosh, probably so much less. And uh, I had someone who they were working at like 120% capacity, right? Burning themselves out, not being able to look for the next job. And I, they were like, I could probably work like 80% and probably still be fine. And then two months later, they got called into their boss's office and they're like all nervous. And the boss was like, you're doing a fantastic job. I gave them a raise. <laughs> it was just like such a funny realization of like, okay, so there is, there are definitely toxic environments at work, but there's also sort of a toxic ethos out there that sometimes we're placing on our workplace and ourselves. And then there's the actual reality. So I want to, you mentioned a phrase, a reasonable expectation. And I'm kind of curious, obviously there's no one answer here, but what are some reasonable expectations that people should have around 
what it's like to have a healthy work life. I mean, work life balance is like the old you know, phrase, but like, sure. what are what are the realistic expectations that we should have when we move into that professional sphere in order to keep ourselves healthy and sane? Oh, I love so much of what you said. And and the piece about the sprinting really resonated for me. And I was actually talking to a client who was talking about um, at his workplace, they were, they were doing um, a timeline on multiple projects and they were um, using that word. And then we're going to sprint for three weeks and then we're going to sprint for two weeks on this. And, and um, when they were done with all of it, he raised his hand and he said, all we're doing is sprinting. It's one sprint followed by the next sprint, followed by the next sprint. There's no rest. There's no jog. <laughs> there's no nothing. It's just constant sprints. And um, I think that that, I think that what you're saying is so true. There is more of a actual expectation for sprinting all the time in the workplace. And there is more of an internalized expectation that we need to sprint all the time. And um there's this beautiful concept in, in Buddhism, which is, it's a very sort of obvious concept when we think about it, but there's no living thing in the world that produces year round, right? If we look at a flower, if we look at a tree, if we look at an animal, there are times for deep production, right? In the spring when, you know, babies are born and flowers and, you know, um, crops are producing. And then there's hibernation in the winter time where we actually restore ourselves. And <clears throat> we all sort of understand from the perspective of nature that like, that's actually what allows for production each year is you must rest. And I, I do think that the expectation that rest or at least the slow jog, right, is, is part of part of a healthy work environment is a really important expectation, both internally and from the work environment itself. And, and like I said, I, I think that you really hit on something important where we're sometimes pushing ourselves so hard with really from fear of what's gonna happen if we don't. And the question you ask is so important. Okay, what, what's the least I can work without getting in trouble? There's this really, this big fear of like, I'm gonna get called out for not being, for not sprinting all the time, rather than saying, if I'm sprinting all the time, something isn't hap something unhealthy is happening because we all know sort of objectively that that's unsustainable. Yeah, and I think the unsustainability piece is, is big here because obviously there's no one answer, right? Everyone's job is different. You know, a lawyer is different than a social media manager is different than a therapist, right? And so when we think about these things, um, I like that you're calling out this fear piece because it does, it's, it's kind of like looking at what drives you and looking at the overall sustainability of things versus the short-term progress. And you know, we see this in, in all sorts of different self-help stuff, but um, there's this concept I was reading about recently where they kind of made, they mapped it out kind of like a, a dartboard. And so like you're at the center of the dartboard and if you're not taking care of yourself, you can't get to the other rings. So it's like mm -hmm. self and then it's friends and family and then it's work and then it's community. And so if you look at it from that perspective, it's like, a lot of times you'll see people in, in jobs. I, I'm working with a social worker right now. 
And the expectation is like, this is, you know, really important work that helps people. So destroy yourself to do it. And so that's focused on the, on the job side without, well, while ignoring the self side. And in this other book that I'm reading, it's like, well, if you haven't protected your own energy and you're not protecting your own, um, you know, mental health and everything else, how can you help anyone else? Cause then you'll show up and you'll be in a bad mood or you'll be like, uh, too tired to help, or you'll maybe, who knows, like fall asleep on a call with someone like it'd be terrible. And so like, mm-hmm. all these things are so interesting because, um, there is this sort of ethos of like, make yourself into a, you know, a working robot, like this just nonstop production machine. And it does come from this place of fear. And, and when it comes to these sprints or these jogs, you know, I've even seen it personally, you know, I was in a groove for a while where I was creating a podcast every single Wednesday, I'd release a podcast. And then a whole bunch of stuff happened in my personal life. And I was like, still hitting those Wednesdays somehow. (laughs) And then I was like, wait a second, Mm. I don't like doing this anymore because I haven't taken care of these other things. And so I think part of this jog idea is also, or this like sustainability idea is also allowing for the ebbs and flows. And your, your analogy here of production and hibernation, I think is really good because it does allow for an increase sprint for a while, but then also a decrease. Mm -hmm. And in hibernation, people might go, wait, so I just, what, take like vacation for three weeks? It's like, no, no, no. Like hibernation can just look like the slow jog. Like, okay, so when I can make a podcast, I'll put it out. And then if I can get back on a good schedule, great. That means that my life is going well again, right? And so we look at all these things and it really is this just juggling act of constantly trying to move things forward while taking into account everything that's happening in your life at the time. And I do find that a lot of times if you're bringing this to your boss in the right way, um, not just saying like, I'm stressed and I can't do this or something like that, right? If you're, if you're learning how to communicate these difficulties in the right way, a lot of people are more understanding than we think. Have you sort of seen that in your work where it's like sometimes our fear of being less than, right? prevents us from actually having conversations that could make our work environment better. Um, What have you sort of seen in in that respect? Absolutely. I mean, I think that both from the perspective of like having a conversation with a boss, but also like having conversation with the team and, and actually offloading some responsibilities and delegating some things differently. Um, I, I do find that sometimes people that really, really struggle with, um, I have so much to do. I have so much to do. They, you know, technically have the option of, of delegating it to other people of teaming on the project. Um, and sometimes it can actually be a little bit of a control thing, you know, they really want to be fully in control of the output of the work and it makes them very nervous to delegate. Um, and so, or they have, you know, the, the tricky um, mind game of what's well, going to take me more time to teach this person how to do it in the first place. Okay, well, that's true the first time, right? But if you actually create a, a workflow, um, then that person can be a resource for you in the future. Um, and so that's actually been a big part of helping people to manage um manage the workload when I work with them is also talking about like what internally is getting in the way of them 
delegating more. And as far as talking to supervisors and things like that, I think you're absolutely right. There is a lot, um, there tends to be more understanding out there than we fear. And I will also say, if there's not, that's a really important piece of information about if it's sustainable to continue to work somewhere. You know, if you go to your boss and say like, this, it feels really impossible. I'm drowning. I really need help. Or even like, can we have a conversation about how we can offload some of these things, even temporarily? Someone's not receptive to that. That's a really big problem. And I think people's fear is, oh my gosh, what if somebody says, well, you just need to work harder. You need to work longer hours. And I'm like, if somebody says that, that's a problem and that we need to take that information and think about if this is really like a sustainable place for you to be. Yeah. Oh, I love that. And as a recovering, uh, yes, man, <laughs> I do. Yeah. I resonate that with that because like, um, I, I had someone on the podcast years ago. I'm trying to remember who it was, but they said, um, every time their boss comes to them with a new task, they go, all right, let's have a sit down. <laughs> and they sit down with their boss. Yeah. And they go, Here's all my things that I'm working on. Here's how they're prioritized. Do you agree with this prioritization? And the boss goes, yes, I agree with that prioritization. And they go, where do you want this to fit into the priorities? Because it's going to knock something off because I only have mm -hmm. this many hours to work. And it's just, but that also just shows confidence and it shows proactiveness and it shows a lot of other skills that the boss cares about. And so I think, again, it's how you approach these things too. Because if you're just the person going around going, I'm so busy, I'm so busy. And your hair is always on fire every single day, people start to, you know, it's cry wolf, right? And then- yeah. And then if you don't have solutions, that's that whole cliche of go to your boss with a solution, not a problem. Um, you know, those are all really good things to keep in mind. Um, but again, this also comes down to that ability to trust yourself, to, tr to trust your own capacity, to trust that that capacity is okay, to trust that you can actually have these conversations with people and they won't go off the rails, um, or if they do, that you can handle it if it goes off the rails, right? There's so many yeah. different areas of trust that we need to build. Um, and there's also a lot of mindsets that get us trapped. And I wanna get into some of those, like what are the different mindsets that um, can maybe like, let's say we're in, a, in an environment that's not the best environment. Maybe it's not the worst environment, but it's not the mm -hmm. best environment. And we don't have a very good sense of self ownership and trust. I think that that's probably the most common. It's not the most toxic workplace on the planet where you're just being berated every day and, and, and gaslit every minute, but also you're not the strongest person for that environment. And so you've got this like eh, environment with sort of a, you know, lack of self agency. And we're stuck in this place where we just feel like, um, we don't trust ourselves or the company to make the decisions, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it can really increase our overwhelm and our anxiety and our fear. And you had mentioned something in our previous call of like, we all have this inherent wisdom. Um, mm -hmm. And I was just kind of curious, like how do we get in touch with that? And how do we um, identify the mindsets that are keeping us in situations that maybe we can work through in, in healthier ways? Absolutely. Yeah. I love the way that you named that, that like maybe the most common situation is that we don't have the worst work environment, but we also don't have the most confident sense of ourselves. And that combination 
um, can be really challenging. And I can, I can speak from personal experience. I mean, I had a work environment that was not the best and not the worst. And I was also in a place where I was very self-doubting. Um, and I think what was really clear for me at that time and what I see in a lot of my clients is I was just so driven by anxiety. Anxiety was like the reason I did everything. It was the reason I would have meetings. It was the reason I would stay late at work. It was the reason I would um, push on certain projects or not say no to things. And when I think of anxiety, I think of it as like kind of a loud, obnoxious person in the room. And it's hard to not pay attention to. It's hard to ignore. It's hard to hear anything else when that voice is is in, in the mix. And um, this principle of Buddhist psychology, which is the um, lens that I work through, is that we all have inherent wisdom within us. It's not something that we need to create. It's not something that we need to build. It's something that we need to reveal in ourselves or sort of reconnect with in ourselves. And the way I think of wisdom is like a quiet, persistent voice. And it manifests very differently than something like anxiety. But um, anxiety, when it's always screaming, is really, really hard to hear the wisdom that we have within us. And so I actually think a really important part of reconnecting to our wisdom is actually being able to manage and um, tolerate those really overwhelming, really loud emotions, learn to be with them, learn to self-regulate. And then we sort of have this opening where we can hear what we already know. Um, And I think that sometimes our wisdom is telling us something that feels scary or inconvenient. And so when we hear it, we're like, well, I didn't want to hear that. (laughs) And, you know, maybe our wisdom is saying, this is not the place for you, or maybe this isn't even the career for you. You know, I find that when I get into that territory with people, fear just goes really, really high. It's like, I can't go back to school. I can't throw away all the training at, you know, and it's, it's so hard for them even to think about what they want because the fear and anxiety is so loud and so intense. But in Buddhist psychology, we see all of our emotions as just information about what's happening in the current moment. And we create these, we tend to create these really big stories about anxiety, which is like, you know, maybe we're catastrophizing about what's going to happen if this bad thing happens, or maybe we're wondering, what does it mean about me that I'm so anxious? And, you know, it's these big stories that we get really tangled in versus just saying, wow, I'm noticing that I'm really overwhelmed and really anxious right now. What's that telling me about my experience of this job, my experience of this project, my experience of this coworker? And if we can sort of glean the information and self-regulate during the overwhelming emotion, we can just integrate it as um, information about what's happening and, and sort of connect into our wisdom. And um, so I do find that a lot of times when people come to me, they're kind of only hearing the anxiety and they feel like they have no idea what they want, no idea what to do, no sense of direction. When it's in there, they just aren't able to hear it yet. Gosh, that's so good because it really does kind of these 
the loudest voice pushes all the rest of them down. And this sort of reminds me of like internal family systems where you like try and exactly you know, manage all the emotions and get them to work together. Um, and mm-hmm. one of the things, this reminds me of a, of a client that I have where they were in an environment that was really stressful, just super stressful environment. And they were like, I got to get out of this toxic job, right? And so we did all this work, got them into a new company. Um, and they're like, great. All right. See you later. And they paused coaching or stopped coaching. And then, you know, a handful of months go by and then they reach out and they're like, I'm so bored now. And they're like, I need coaching again to get to a different job. And we're talking through it. And I'm like, what it sounds like is, uh, you know, this whole concept of wherever you go, you bring yourself with you. Right. It's like, yeah, that environment was a rough environment and you had a lot going on internally. And now you're in a boring environment and there's nothing to justify how you're feeling. And so, mm. yeah. So now it's like, I thought my anxiety was, was caused externally. I thought it was because of my job. I thought it was because of my, you know, family, or I thought it was because of my relationship, whatever you think the, is creating the anxiety and probably is true to some extent, but as soon as they got to a calm place, the anxiety and the anxiety didn't go away. I think that's also one way to kind of figure out if it's the environment or if it's you or if it's a combination of the two, because, uh, you know, basically what they had was this like moment to sit and then they're like, I need to quit this job too. And you can sort of watch (laughs) your patterns happen. And, uh, you know, they're working through that right now. And uh, we're trying to figure out like, well, okay, what would be the right environment? But that sort of, we were chatting recently and we were talking about this like Goldilocks mindset that crept in. It's like that job was toxic. This job is boring. Someday I'll find this perfect role. That's the right combination of too much to do, but not too much to do, but also like, you know, making me like feel good about myself, but not making me feel like I'm overworking. And I was like, okay, there's a lot to like navigate here. Right. And, and it really brings it back to what you're talking about with these stories uh, that we get tangled into. Right. Because I think everyone grows up with a different view of what it is to be a professional, of what it is to work, right? And sometimes um, there's a lot of, as we've talked about here, a lot of like morality put into it or identity put into it or any number of different things that make us feel like, well, we're not being what we should be. And this should idea creeps in. And one of the things that I think is so interesting, as you were talking about the, the Buddhist, like inherent wisdom, it's not something you need to get. It's something that you need to let, <laughs> to use a mm. fun phrase there, right? And like yeah. this idea of removing things rather than trying to become things. And so, um, you know, we might view a successful professional as someone who's like up at 5 a.m., you know hitting the gym, going to work, crushing it, coming home, writing a book at night and like trying to like, you know, whatever the thing is that we, we picture. Mm -hmm. And there are a million websites and people who are going to latch on to that desire and try and sell you into it even more and deeper and, you know, buy their products. And, uh, (laughs) and one of the things that I find so interesting is like, there's a million different ways to be in this world, right? There's there's, you could have a slow career. You could have a less ambitious career. It's not what most people would say in our culture you should do, but there's plenty of people who are just like, I like being, you know, this. 
And I don't need to be any more than this. And as long as I can sustain that in a healthy way over a long period of time and, you know, definitely keep out for any economic changes or industry sweeps or things like that. But there is this sort of relaxing into yourself and trusting that there is something in there that knows the answer. Like it doesn't maybe know the answer right this second, but it can figure it out. And how have you seen people letting go of some of these stories that are in their head? Like what are, what are maybe a couple examples of like a story that someone had that they realized, wait, that's not actually me. This is me. Have you, have you seen anything like that? Yeah. And, you know, before I say that, I just want to, I loved what you said about the, the example you gave about the, um, too toxic, too boring work environment. And it reminds me of this, this very central concept in Buddhist psychology of, of striving, you know, and how striving is really the, the centerpiece of our experience of suffering. And um, I've worked with so many people that have said a lot of people strive around salary, right? It's like, okay, well, once I make six figures, I'm going to be happy and I'm going to have what I need and I'm going to feel a sense of security. And then magically, you know, they, they finally get there. And then it's like, oh, well, actually, I mean, the, you know, the economy has changed. Now I actually need to make 150. And, and the, the fallacy that we keep falling into is that we think we've strived for the wrong thing. Right. And we just say, Oh, it's just that I get, I, I was after the wrong thing rather than acknowledging that believing that this magic bean is the answer to our suffering is actually causing us suffering. And so, um, you know, there's, there's what you so skillfully pointed out with your client was that there was suffering going on internally for him. And he was able to sort of externalize it and say, it's the job. And then when it wasn't the job anymore, oh, well, maybe it's still the job, (laughs) right? And it doesn't mean that there's no suffering in the job, but it also means that there's something internal at play that is, um, that is, you know, really pushing, pushing that desire. And, um, and, you know, when I think of stories, I think of like somebody came to me and she, um, talked about the fact that she had recently become a manager and she was getting the feedback that she was not a good manager and it was incredibly painful for her. And, um, she, but she also really latched on to that feedback because it was something she was afraid was true, which is true about most feedback in general. <laughs> the feedback that we really latch onto, the one, you know, especially if it's constructive feedback, is if we're afraid that that thing is true about us and somebody externally confirms it, we latch onto it. And so she was always afraid she was a bad manager. She got the feedback that she wasn't doing well as a manager. She really latched onto it. And then she could only see the ways that she was failing as a manager. And when we actually talked about it, she talked about all the ways that she was a leader in her life, in her community, in her family, in ways that felt really natural and intuitive for her. And then she got some feedback from her actual team 
that she was really doing a good job. And we were really able to sort of differentiate her supervisor's story about her leadership from the experience of the people that she was leading. And maybe she wasn't leading the way that her supervisor thought she should lead, but she was leading in a way that was effective for her team. And <clears throat> I think that it was helpful because sometimes when we get this scary feedback, it just goes into the truth file in our brain, you know? Um, I, like I said, especially if it's something that we're kind of afraid is true about, if it's, if it's something we're insecure about in ourselves. And she came to me and said, I just found out I was a bad leader, rather than saying, I just got the feedback that I'm a bad leader and I don't know that it makes sense to me. And so we did a lot of work around like, well, where does that story come from? And, and what story do you have about yourself as a leader in your lived experience of your life in the feedback that you've gotten from the people that you've led. And I think that's an important sort of differentiation as far as stories go. And especially when a story that we have about ourselves is scary and salacious and whatever, it tends to really cement itself in there and we don't question it. Um, when it may be just as false as any other feedback, you know, or untrue or subjective as any other feedback we could get. We interrupt today's episode to let you know about Career Therapy's Unstuck Coaching Program. If you're feeling paralyzed by job search procrastination and unsure of what to do next in your career, we're here to help. Each month as a member, you will get access to two one-on-one -on -one coaching calls, unlimited virtual chat with your coach via Slack, invitations to bi-weekly group coaching sessions, and lifetime access to our eight-part job search curriculum. Want to take your search to the next level? head over to careertherapy.com and schedule a free 15-minute consultation to chat with me today and see if coaching is right for you. Now back to our show. That plays into the job search so well because there's this, um, there's this feeling when people are applying for jobs and interviewing and things and they don't get that feedback or they get rejected without any, any human contact, right? It plays into those stories that we already have in our head, those negative stories, right? And one of the things um, that's unfortunate is that whatever we're insecure about, we'll validate. We'll be like, well, I didn't get that job because you know, clearly I'm not enough this, or I look this way, or I'm this thing or whatever. And then we start to confirm that internal insecurity or bias. And then we look for it more and then we reconfirm it and we reconfirm it. And then all of, everything becomes about that, right? Um, and it's so, it's so difficult to take a step back and just be like, wait a second, where am I actually, like, what am I actually good at? We're, we're so conditioned to look for the negative, to look for the thing that we stink at and to try and get better at that. And I remember early in my career, I was in a role that was like completely analytics based and I can't even do like simple addition. So I was like creating formulas in an Excel spreadsheet is not my forte. And so uh, I just remember like working every weekend and constantly being told I wasn't good at this. And then we, we took a strengths finders test at work and they were like, you should focus on your strengths and like 
of course, all my strengths are what I do now, but <laughs> everything in my job at that point was at the bottom of my list. And I remember going to my boss and being like, shouldn't I be in a different role? Like if these are my strengths and these are my weaknesses, like, my whole job is my weaknesses. And they were like, well, we don't have time for that. So just get back to work. And I was like, okay, this is terrible. But <laughs> you know, it really is one of those things where I find that there's this weird mental thing that happens when we're doing work that comes naturally to us, we almost don't give ourselves credit for it. I see this all the time when trying to help people like write a resume or sell themselves in an interview or something like that. It's like, well, yeah, but that's, that's, that's the thing that I just do. This is what I stink at. How do I overcome that challenge? And I'm like, no, 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 no. Like just do more of what seems easy. And, and for me, that's been a life-changing, you know, career-changing thing where it's like, I didn't even want to be a coach in the first place. Like people kept just coming to me when I was working in marketing and they just wouldn't stop talking about their lives and their careers to the point where like, when I quit my job, my manager came up to me and was like, you inspired me to quit too. And I'm like, well, you were unhappy. No wonder I was unhappy. Right. Like, and so these are just funny things that happen. And, and I think it's so it's so odd that, you know, when we get feedback, when we do talk to our manager, you know, everyone wants to be in this like improvement mindset. Well, here's what you're not doing well. So let's get better at those things. But then you can make your entire job things that you don't do well um, versus delegating it or versus moving to a different role or something along those lines. And again, going back to that idea of like revealing your wisdom or like um, allowing yourself to just like relax into who you are. I think that's when people start to get into like the flow state and get into like careers that they might be working a ton, but it it's stuff that they're not fighting against. Like if I was doing spreadsheets for 10 hours a day, I'd be miserable. But if I'm talking to people for 10 hours a day, I'm still somewhat energetic at the end of the day. <laughs> Maybe I'm pretty tired, but yeah, you know, and like those are very interesting um, shifts in mindset to that sort of, you know, following your strengths thing. But I think even when people think about following their strengths, they're like, I could be stronger at these things. And like, they kind of take on that mindset. What have you sort of seen around strengths and weaknesses and how to maybe, um, shift your focus to something that's a little bit more healthy in regards to like what work we take on? Yeah, this is such a great point. And um, a phrase that came to mind that I believe my coach said to me at some point when I was starting my business is she said, let it be easy. And, um, you know, because I, I can't remember, I was talking about marketing or something. And I was like, Oh, I just hate doing this kind of marketing. And she was like, Okay, don't do that kind of marketing. You know, what kind of marketing like excites you what feels good for you. And I was like, Oh, I like, you know, talking to people I like, um, you know, interacting with people, it's easier for me than other things. And she was like, Okay, great. Like, how, how do we, how do we build on that? And I think that there's some sort of intuitive thing that has to do with capitalism or the way that we were raised or something that like we should be suffering in our work, you know, that that means it's hard work. And um, something that's been a really helpful way of shifting the way that I think about the ideas of strengths is in Buddhist psychology, we have um, the these sort of like um, aspects of a personality that are um, correlated with 
the elements. And so there's like earth, wind, or um, earth, wind, fire, and water. And there are strengths and they call them um, strengths and kleshas. Kleshas is a form of suffering in each of those components. So we think of fire as something that can be both destructive and also incredibly um, necessary, right? For us to be able to eat, to stay warm, all of these things. And it's about if we have a lot of a certain element within us, it's really knowing how do I use that element for good? And it's it's very much like sort of a conceptualization of strengths that has really made sense for me because it's not stigmatizing the fact that you have more of this than the other thing. It's just the way we are. And there's wisdom in each of these elements. And <clears throat> like, it's also really helped me in seeing um, the wisdom of elements that I'm very unfamiliar with and that I can sometimes be dismissive of when other people are really strong in that area. And so I do sort of feel like one of the problems that's really central to the strengths and weaknesses conversation is that we feel like such a personal failing when we don't have an abundance of a certain skill versus just acknowledging that we're all made up of of different skill sets of different elements in this particular um, conceptualization. And there's nothing good or bad about it. Every element has strengths, every element has ways in which it can cause suffering. And when we know that about ourselves, we can integrate that information into creating a life that feels like in flow for us. I really like that. Yeah, I, the, the one that really resonates with me of those elements is like, water can hydrate or drown you. Right. And so like, exactly. Right. And, and that's so true because like, are you, you know, even when you do start leaning into your strengths, sometimes you can still take on too much and, and finding that right balance is, and, that, and maybe that's part of it. You know, we were talking about that Goldilocks scenario of like, I need to find the job that's just right. And the truth is, is that you need to find a job that is good enough and then you need to work on yourself to balance the scales on an ongoing basis. And we might think like, okay, I got to a point where the scales are balanced, but then something happened in my life over here that's gonna affect it. And being able to constantly adjust and, and, and I do like the word flow because it is like flow with it, right? Like our career should be an ebb and a flow and, and like this you know, sprint and a jog and, and really mm -hmm. just being okay with those ups and downs versus this always producing, or especially, you know, if you run your own business, like there's this pressure to just be, you know, Gary Vaynerchuk. And it's like, yeah, if I tried to be him without his actual personality in my body, I'm going to, I'm going to have a really hard time. And so like, <laughs> um, and, and it really does, it, it's about finding what works. And the nice thing is, is that there's so many different ways that you can make it work, right? Like when it comes to the marketing stuff you talked about, I remember I'll, I'll see people make these just, you know, them talking to the camera videos on YouTube and they've tons and tons of views and all that good stuff. And then I'll try to do it and I'll like redo it 70 times. And then I'll like spend too much time editing it. And then I'll like not want to post it because I think it's too cringy. And then I'll do like in that time, I could have probably recorded like seven podcasts, you know, and like, yeah, these are the things that it's like, okay, well, just lean into the things, again, that come naturally to you, and listen to feedback that 
from people that you trust too. And, and, mm-hmm. um, you know, bringing it back around to this idea of trust, I think one of the things that we struggle with as well is, um, turning our job into an identity that is overshadowing our actual identity. Um, and then we're almost trusting like the image of that job more than who we are as a person and kind of realizing that like, you know, you might lose this job tomorrow, but you're not, you're never going to lose yourself. Right. And so how do you figure out who you are separate from work? Maybe even while you're at work, which is a tough thing to do. Um, but having a little bit of separation between your personal identity and your career identity so that, you know, when you get laid off, potentially at some point, your whole world doesn't crumble. You still have this to hold on to. How do you, how have you helped people maybe get rid of some of this noise and actually listen to their, their real self versus this like idealized identity or picture of themselves that they're trying to build to? Yeah, what a great question. I mean, I, I think a lot about the fact that in um, my generation, like when I was growing up, m- my parents asked me all the time, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And teachers asked all the time, what do you want to be when you grow up? You even think of the construction of the sentence, like, what do you want to be, right? It's a, per- it's a permanent state of being. <laughs> and um, it was kind of like the most common question about our future identity that we were asked about. And of course, I don't think there was any malicious intent in that, but it really did set a precedent of like, this is an incredibly important part of your identity. And it sort of set the idea that it was going to be relatively permanent. Like, oh, I'm going to be a doctor. And that's one thing. <laughs> you, don't, you don't evolve into different things over, over your um, you know, career. And I think that, um, you know, I, I really had this experience as a social worker because it's such a, I felt it was such a strong identity. It was very tied to social justice for me, emphasizing mental health. Um, and it was also, you know, and I am still a social worker and I don't work in social work the way that I used to and sort of reorienting the way that I think about social work, the way that I think about um, manifesting those values and the way that I work now was really challenging for me because I mean, I even think when I was in social work school, they talked all the time about like, this is, it it was a very sort of self-sacrificial career as you were talking about the social worker that you were working with, you know? And um, that, that was sort of like, well, this is who you are. This is why you got into social work. You didn't do this to make money. You didn't do it for the fame. And like, well, obviously that's true, but you know, it's helpful to be able to make a living. And, but you know, when I was thinking about things like, wow, I don't know if I'm going to be able to continue in this career and really be able to support my family. I felt a tremendous amount of shame because I felt like I was being driven by money and social workers aren't supposed to be driven by money. And there was like this, as you said, like myself as a social worker and myself living in the world, <laughs> figuring out um, what I need felt felt different. And I do think that there is a sense of, um, I, I mean, it's it's to the extent that it's one of the first things that we ask each other when we meet each other, what do you do for a living? You know, what's your job? And so we're really pushing against the culture when we work to disentangle our sense of self from our career. And 
I do think that there's, um, like I, I've, I've worked with a lot of attorneys that talk a lot about, well, I think this way because I'm an attorney and I, I do this because I'm an attorney and um, that I argue this way because I'm an attorney. And maybe, you know, or maybe there was something within you, you know, that um, was sort of predisposed to that or drawn to that. And that's what drew you to the career. And so sometimes I think we get it a little mixed up and we say like, oh, these things about me are because of my career and not these things about me um, drew me to this career and they exist independently of the career. You know, like the fact that I care about social justice and mental health exists independently of the fact that I have the label of social worker. And so I think it's almost like backing into these aspects of ourselves that maybe even drew us to the job in the first place and really allowing ourselves to own them as aspects of ourselves that will be there whether or not we have the job title that we have. I really like that because a big piece of, we're almost like back, yeah, it's, it's reversing the flow, right? I'm in this career because I'm this person, not I'm this person because of my career. And I have three brothers who are attorneys and I see it a lot. <laughs> and uh, well, that's how I have to argue with you. It's like, you don't have, anyway, moving on. And so, um, <laughs> and so it's just so funny. Cause like, um, I'll see this when people are trying to get into a career, they're like, well, I'm not a cybersecurity professional yet. I'm trying to break in. And I'm like, I don't know, you think like a cybersecurity person, you know, things that other people don't know about cybersecurity, you're pretty much, that's pretty much, you know, that, but, but we need like that validation or we need something to like, and they, they almost feel like once they are, once they are a cybersecurity professional, then their whole identity will change. And I'm like, no, it's just this slow progression towards a thing. It's like never, there's never like a moment where you're like, oh, I am that thing. Right. And um, I, I see this all the time now that I'm going to school, going back to school, become for social work uh, to our mm -hmm. things that we're talking about. <laughs> like I was talking to someone about how I'm going back to school for social work. Cause like, I'm really interested in this mental health stuff and it comes up a lot in my work and they're like, well, what's your work? And I'm like, well, I'm a coach and here's what I do with people and stuff. And they're like, so you're basically already a counselor. And I was like, yeah, but it's like, you know, I need to be official. And like, even in, in our things, like it can be that way. But one of the things that I think is so important in all of this is the idea of like shifting away from what you are, quote unquote, and talking about what you do. And um, I, I was probably watching some like Justice League cartoon or something. And there was, <laughs> there's this great quote that I, I remember from it where it's like, the person's like, I, I want to be good. And uh, the, the response was, good is something you do, not something you are. And that, that applies in so many ways, I think, to our work. It's like, you know, being a coach is something I do. It's not who I am. And, and I know that for a fact, because when I was working in marketing, I would talk to people for like four hours after an event about their job. And I wasn't a coach and I wasn't being paid. And I wasn't like, I didn't have any official title or, or business or anything. I was just that person who wants to talk about those, those things. And, um, and I think that it can also be very helpful for people to have that shift of like, here's what I do, not who I am, because then who you are can be the amalgamation of everything, right? You, you, it's like, I, I loved going around the country on a road trip once and just seeing how people introduce themselves in different places. Cause like in Colorado, they don't say, what do you do? 
they say, mm -hmm. um, where do you, where do you, uh, ski <laughs> was the first thing they asked. <laughs> and like in other countries, um, they ask other things as well. And, and to your point of like, we're almost fighting against the culture in a lot of ways. I think that that can kind of get people stuck as well. And so a lot of this maybe is done internally and not necessarily as externally, but I mean, I see the anxiety that people have just putting cybersecurity professional on their LinkedIn headline. Like that is like one of the most difficult things for someone to finally come to terms with and do. Meanwhile, other people are like, I've 17 titles. <laughs> it's like the, the, the thing is so the, the back and forth is so funny, but um, when it, when it comes down to trusting yourself enough to make these decisions, let's bring it back around as we wrap up here. Mm. Um, what might be one, one exercise or, you know, uh, an activity that someone can engage in to start building that separation and learning how to trust themselves just a little bit more without blowing up their career, without blowing up their life, without making any rash decisions? What are maybe a couple of things that they can do to just get a little bit more perspective on things? Mm. Yeah, you know, there's a really pervasive fear with a lot of people that I work with is like, what if I what if I do the wrong thing? What if I make the wrong decision? And <clears throat> what if I quit this job and something terrible happens? And I think actually the, the most important part of self-trust is being able to trust yourself to handle whatever happens, you know, to handle what happens to you and to acknowledge that we don't, we have no idea what the right decision is. There is no hidden right decision that we can't see right now. There's only the best decision that we can make with the information we have. And there's always going to be a sense of a leap, you know, and, um, uh, and a risk. And the way that I, I think about it is like, when, when people talk to me about their strengths, about what they're really good at, about um, their skills and their mindset, I think about like, wow, what an awesome person to have on your own team when crap hits the fan, <laughs> you know, like, and I don't think we think about ourselves in that way. We don't think of ourselves as like, you know, if I make the wrong decision, I want me on my team to help me figure it out. And I think it's like such a sort of fundamental way of relating to ourselves is being able to say, I see that I have the skill set, I have the perseverance, I have the courage to um, to navigate whatever happens. I'm going to make the best decision that I can with the information that I have, and anything could happen. And if any of those options do happen, a great outcome, a terrible outcome, I'm so glad I have me to help me figure it out. And it's, you know, it's sort of a, it's, it's a concept in Buddhism of being your own best friend, but it's, it's really about seeing your value and seeing your skill and being incredibly patient and compassionate with yourself. Because at the end of the day, you are on your own team, you get you, right? Like, what a what a great person to have along for the ride. And, um, and I think really leaning into that and leaning into the value of having you on your team can really sort of anchor people into trusting themselves. I love it. 
That's such a great spot to end on. Alicia, where can people find out more about your work and, uh, and maybe engage with you in some way, shape or form? Yeah, um, my practice is called Goldfinch Wellness, and I'm a psychotherapist and executive coach. And um, so you can go to goldfinchwellness.com. You can sign up for my newsletter and you can learn about uh, working with me in different capacities. And if you want to just shoot me an email and say hi, I would love to hear from you. I love it. All right. Well, thank you for joining <laughs> us today. Uh, this was absolutely wonderful. And, uh, you know, we could probably keep talking for hours, but we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll end it there. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. If you found this conversation to be helpful, please like and subscribe wherever you are listening. We also appreciate it if you take the time to leave us a review on iTunes. It really does help us spread the word and get these ideas out to more job seekers looking to build their careers and improve their lives just like you. If you'd like to learn more about career therapy and see our different coaching options, you can head over to careertherapy.com to learn more. Thank you again for stopping by. We wish you all the best in the future of your career. Have a good one.